For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is an encore edition of Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with Misty Prophet Thompson, the author of From Grief to Acceptance. I'll talk with gender nonconforming activist Jacob Tobiah about their approach to making the world free of gender discrimination and the book Sissy, a coming of gender story. And a choice can either be apples and oranges or chalk and cheese. What UA research into metaphor is revealing about how our brains process creative language. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In the face of great tragedy, like the loss of a loved one to violence, many of us would have to confront the sincerity of our beliefs regarding faith and spirituality. We often hear that it is important to honor our loved ones, but what does this mean in daily practice? My guest, Misty Prophet Thompson, had to face her own crisis of faith in 1993, and after years of depression, she found the path that led her from grief to acceptance, which is the title of her second book of spiritual insights. 1993, definitely a turning point, although I didn't realize the magnitude of it. Um, my sister was missing for 55 days, and we're, we were 18 months apart. And as adults, we weren't that close. So how old was she at this time? Um, at this time, she was 23. This month would be the 26th anniversary. And um, during that time when she was missing, we never dealt with this. My family was very lost. We didn't know what was happening. Law enforcement said we were crazy and that my sister was a wild child and she was just probably out partying and she'd come around at some point. Um, it was just a really traumatic time and, and not knowing my place. I didn't know how to help my mom. I wanted my mom to get help. I wanted to, I didn't know how, but ultimately 55 days later, my sister's remains were found in the desert in Southeastern Arizona. At the time, my mom was so traumatized, of course, but my mom knew something was wrong and it really made me realize that when her remains were found, how grateful we were. And that might sound crazy. I mean, some people would understand that because I feel for the families who never get to see their loved ones and they don't know what happened. They don't know where they're at. They don't have a little bit of closure. We had closure. So we were so grateful for that. But um, it was a huge turning point. I began to see things totally different. Life in itself, different. When people have a tragedy like the one you described occur to them, we don't offer much in the way of infrastructure, emotional infrastructure mm -hmm. to people. But what would you say to someone who is facing the crisis of having to rebuild their spiritual beliefs, their right. infrastructure? That is a very difficult thing. Um, and I saw it with my mom mainly, and she had a lot of anger, a whole lot of regret, she blamed herself. She felt guilty, and it was hard to see her like that. And and it was hard for me. Um, I, I've been told by people in my family that I didn't care about my sister because I had such a um, different outlook with it. And it, I wasn't at peace, I mean, 100%. I definitely lost my religion. And the reason why... 
it was not what I expected from a religious standpoint. Um, you know, I was always taught that good people will prevail and evil will be punished. And it wasn't the case in my sister's case. And I just saw things different from that perspective. After that, I was searching for something, something bigger than myself. And I thought religion was it, and it wasn't. It was not there for me. And it, it showed me what was wrong with my sister's lifestyle, or it showed me what was wrong with my beliefs or what my experiences were. It showed me all of that instead of embracing it and not judging it. There was a lot of judgment, which with religion, you're not supposed to judge, you know, but it was really judgmental. When you talk about harboring anger at that time, mm-hmm. that energy, yes. that's that's a very strong source of energy. Yes. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So how did you channel it? Where did that yeah. energy go mm-hmm. when, it, yeah. when it quit being anger? I was angry at everything and everyone. And I would tell people, I'm mad at the world and you're part of it. But I began to realize that it took a lot of energy to be angry like that all the time. And I was tired. I didn't want to be like that anymore. I didn't want to feel that way anymore. It was old and it wasn't accomplishing anything. I was just stuck going around in a circle and I was just tired of that. And I wanted to move forward. I wasn't a real big believer on some of the things that I was taught at first, but then I thought I don't have anything to lose because I'm tired of feeling this way. I'm tired of being angry. It's exhausting. I don't want this anymore. What I decided to do was to take a look at myself, the way I was doing things and the way I was handling things. And I would make little changes. And part of those changes was to be who I am, because I think that was part of my anger. I was jealous of my sister because she was who she was. She didn't hide it. And I was what everyone else thought I should be. So when I started to kind of slowly peel back and because it didn't happen overnight, it took me a little while to be my true self and to be vulnerable and to show people this is what I believe. And the more I did it, the more empowered I felt. And with that, I just grew so much more spiritual and I began to believe and trust and have more faith. And the more I did that, those little steps I took, the more I did that, the bigger the bigger the rewards were for me. Right in the subtitle of your book, there's a phrase that we hear, but what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Honor our loved ones. Yes. What does that really mean to yes. you? Oh yeah, that's huge. We are here on earth and we tend to be stuck in our grief. But... Our loved ones don't want that for us. And by honoring our loved ones, we need to live the life that promotes our best self, puts our best version out there, to live the life we want to live, to not be afraid. Our loved ones don't want that for us. And that is one thing huge I learned from my sister. Because if we get upset, we're not honoring our loved ones because our loved ones want us to be happy. They want what's best for us. So honoring our loved ones is absolutely that, being our best version. Misty Prophet Thompson's latest book is called From Grief to Acceptance.
one or zero, yes or no, boy or girl. Binary is a language that might work well for computers, but human beings are more complex. Jacob Tobias' first book is all about growing up, trying to find identity in the gender-defying space that's in between. Sissy, a coming-of-gender story, covers Tobias' personal experience from preschool to college and their emergence as a gender-nonconforming activist and creative artist who has proudly worn high heels to the White House twice to stand up for LGBTQ rights. Tobias will be in Tucson next week as a guest of the Pima County Public Library. It's funny to me just how fundamental knowledge of whether someone is a boy or a girl is. And I think there is no greater illustration of just how kind of dependent we are on that information than when people meet your pet, right? Like when someone comes up to you and meets your dog, 90% of the time, the first question is, oh, is it a boy or a girl? Yeah. And it's like, it's a dog. They don't have the same gender understanding that we do. And they certainly don't care which pronouns you use in English because they don't speak English. You know, like, like what bearing does that have on the interaction that you're going to have, you know? And I feel like when I point that out to people about, ironically enough, about dogs and then being like, oh, I guess I could just say hello to a dog and ask ask its name and then just be as enthusiastic as I'd like to be about this beautiful, incredible golden retriever in front of me, you know? And then I'm like, well, can't you extend that same courtesy to a person, right? Like, isn't it possible for us to meet one another and be like, I don't fully understand the, the story of your gender. Um, and that's okay because we're just meeting, you know, and I'm going to be respectful to you and kind to you and treat you with decency because that's how I treat people. While reading your book, I felt like every chapter really in a lot of ways brought me closer to you because it was focused on your experience, not the oppressive role of gender in our culture. It was Mm -hmm. you navigating through those spaces. Don't we all want to live the life we want to live? I mean, I know know someone who's trans, and when I first met them, uh, I didn't question it. I didn't wander about it or have any questions. But as I got to know them better, I realized that this was one of the happiest people that I'm lucky to know. Because there's someone who's made concrete choices in their own favor, they made the choices that made them happy. And today they are who right. they want to be. And when people talk about, you know, the, say, issues with blending trans or queer culture with cisgender culture or heteronorms, it seems like it's missing the point that we should all be so lucky as to know someone who has managed to become a happy person. And, right. and you radiate that. Well, I just feel so honored by your words and, and by the fact that that reading the book that you feel closer to me and to this story, I mean, that's every author's dream, right, is to hear that. Um, but I also feel like, you know, it's it was something that was very intentional when I was crafting the book. There's this pressure sometimes when you come from any kind of marginal community that you have to write something that's that's somehow universal or or representative, right? There's this representative pressure that I have to write a book that somehow sums up the entirety of the non-binary experience or the trans experience via my personal story, right? There's that sort of pressure that you have to help people understand the entirety of the thing through your own lens, but you can never do that. No one person's story can access the entire story of a community. It's only ever a sampling of that. And so for me, I, I really, I took a, you know, a really hard turn into 
making sure that I, I gave myself permission to be like, this is just my experience and is a very personal story that has greater social implications, but is first and foremost about letting people in to, to sort of my world and, and the world as I've experienced it. But something else you said really resonated with me, and I, because I think it's, it's a message that we don't hear very often about trans people and about the trans and non-binary community. There's this sort of stereotype that trans people are all, you know, very traumatized, hurt people who are meek and have been brought down by the world. But I've found very much the opposite to be true. Being trans and being of trans experience what it does is it it kind of compels you, it forces you to contend with your gender-based trauma, you know, with the way that gender has helped you and empowered you, but also with the ways that gender has hurt you. And if there's one lesson that I think the trans community has to teach the entire world, it's how to heal from gender-based trauma and how to understand and claim the fullness of yourself outside of the prescriptive boundaries that were given. Right. Like no child should have to give up their hobbies because they aren't coded correctly under the gender that they're understood to be. You shouldn't have to learn to speak differently. So your voice sounds more masculine. You shouldn't have to learn to, you know, to walk more daintily so that you appear more feminine when you need to. Right. You should just be able to express yourself how how you feel best. Um, And I think the reality of our world is that. the gender binary and the idea that there are only two genders and that they have, you know, these traditions of masculinity and femininity attached and that you must uh, conform to that, it makes it really hard to be in touch with who you really are. So there's something about transition and there's something about claiming trans experience that helps you kind of transcend all of that. One of the funny parts in your book, and there are many, is when you talk about camping as being kind of a de-genderfying experience. When people are camping in a group, it's an equal playing field, uh, gender not invited. Yeah. I mean, the thing I love about camping, especially if you're backpacking, is that um, you don't even have to worry about finding a gender-neutral restroom um, (laughs) because an entire mountain range becomes your gender-neutral restroom, and you never have to worry about having your gender police. Uh, while you're using the facilities, because there are none. You just have to worry about bears. And I think that's fabulous. (laughs) Yeah, nature can be a great equalizer in that way. And I feel feel really at home in my body when I'm in nature, because it reminds me that there is nothing unnatural about being a gender-expansive person, you know, that that I am made exactly the way I'm supposed to be and that gender nonconforming people have existed as long as gender has existed. We're part and parcel of the fabric of of the natural world. Um, And and I, I feel really grounded by that knowledge. And for people who say that because of the strides that's been made in representation recently, that you guys have it easy now, you know, why is the trans community still up in arms over being mistreated Aren't they satisfied with the progress they've made? What would your reply be? Um, Well, I think it's very possible to be grateful for the progress you've made um, and acknowledge that there's still quite a bit more to go. Like, it's possible to say, yes, I have run three miles, and I'm really happy about that. Um, But this isn't a 5K. It's a marathon. It's not good strategically to think that you're almost done when you're not. Um, And, and, you know, on on a more kind of human level, Uh, if people want to say, oh, you have all this visibility, like you're good now. It's like, I don't ever want people to mistake visibility for the ultimate goal, right? The ultimate goal is to live in a world where the lived experiences 
of gender nonconforming and trans people are no different than the lived experiences of anyone else, right? The, the goal is to live in a world free from discrimination, free from violence, and where everyone has access to gender self-determination. Visibility and having some trans people on TV is only a step towards that goal. It's a tool towards what we actually need to accomplish on a grand societal and structural level. We're not even remotely close to done. We're just getting started. For anyone who says that that's not true um, and that you know we should be grateful for what we have and there are no problems, the trans people are making it up, um, I would just say all you have to do is, if you're male-bodied, put on a dress and lipstick uh, and walk into a men's bathroom at an airport you know, and just see how you feel. See if it feels like no big deal anymore then. Um, because that's, you know, and talk about another place where I'm still struggling. I travel so much for work and airports are awful. There's very rarely access to gender neutral restrooms. Airports are already miserable enough just as a human um, that like, you know, when you add sort of trying to like pee and safety to that equation, it's really tough. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I would just say that that visibility is only the beginning of the movement. It is a tool to help build people's consciousness so that we can start shifting policies, so that we can start redesigning and reimagining gender um, in our public consciousness. And we've made incredible strides, but we're not done. And that's exciting. It means there's more work to do. And I'm a workaholic, so I'm happy about that. I spoke with Jacob Tobiah about their book, Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. The human brain is tasked with processing many different kinds of information. One of the most deceptively simple tasks is decoding metaphor. When we say that life can be a journey, or that we're feeling blue, or that someone is fishing for a compliment, we're using colorful language to convey our real meaning. But for a child, or someone whose first language is not English, these common phrases could potentially be mystifying. Vicki Lai is an assistant professor in the UA Department of Psychology Cognitive Science Program. And for more than a decade, she's been studying how metaphors are decoded by the brain and the reason that we tend to use them so often. The first and foremost question for metaphor researchers is essentially the same questions that everybody asks. Are metaphorical languages different from literal language? That's kind of the question that drove metaphor research in the past 20, 30 years. Also, that's the question that drove my research in the past 10 years. Right now, I'm trying to look at how metaphor can benefit users. We speak metaphors once every 20 words. Why? Why do we use metaphors so frequently? Does it help? Does it help us remember things more? Does it help us to be more emotionally engaged? And to your knowledge, are metaphors universal throughout the languages of the world? Yes, indeed. You can find metaphors in all languages. They are a little different, but they are relatively universal. So when you first began to look at brain scans, either through, was it fMRI that you use? I primarily use EEG, which is brainwave measure. And I also use fMRI, which is an imaging method. So um, the first, the EEG, is more like a line on a graph. That's right. Okay, and then the imaging is a picture of the brain. We've all seen those colored images where different active parts of the brain might light up in red. Yes. So when you first began to look at these scans of brains of people while they were using language and interpreting metaphor, what was the first impression you had? What jumped out at you from that way of looking at things? The timing. 
I went for the EEG method first because of the timing, because I always wanted to understand the processing difference between metaphoric language and literal language. Explain to us what a test subject would experience coming into your lab. I would love to be a part of something like this. So when I walk in the door, what's going to be my experience as a participant? Well, we'll first ask you to sign an informed consent. <laughs> That's <laughs> standard, we, yeah. Yes, and then we will put a cap full of sixty-four electrodes on your head, and、um, fitted them with electric gel to make sure that everything is、uh, conductive correctly. And then we will show you sentences on the computer screen. And can you think of an example of some of the sentences that a test subject would read? Life can be sometimes bumpy. I would read that sentence, and you would see what happening in the picture of my brain activity. The brainwave measure is continuous, so、um, we will have a continuous measure, and we'll basically we time lock the brainwave to the word bumpy, because that's the part when the utterance turns metaphoric. So we see how that's different、uh, compared to the row can sometimes be bumpy. That is to say, when you see bumpy, you have basically B U M P Y exactly the same visual output, physical output. The word form is exactly the same. What's different is the psychological variable. Is it metaphoric or not metaphoric, based on the context? That's where the analysis is. What is a surprising result from these experiments that has changed the way you think about this process? Before I started my、uh, very first study on metaphor, I thought that they would be the same for conventionalized metaphors. For instance, life can sometimes be bumpy. I didn't expect to see a differential brainwave because I would think that that's a conventional metaphor. Yeah. And I thought that we would only see that difference in the novel metaphor condition, but hey. We saw a difference. It's surprising to me that、uh, something that familiar in our daily language can show this kind of differential brain signatures. In layman's terms, we sometimes refer to people being right-brained or left-brained, based on whether they're more of a language and art person or more of a math and science person. But does left and right brain behavior seem to be reflected in your research? So this relates to the second most asked question in the metaphor research: whether metaphor engages the right hemisphere more due to its creativity. A lot of people said yes, and also a lot of people said no. But my research showed that、uh, it's a matter of how you view laterality. If you say that if there is any activations for metaphoric language in the right hemisphere, then the short answer is yes. But at the same time, some other studies also reported that difficult language, difficult literal language, also engages the right hemisphere more. In that sense, it could be that metaphoric language is a bit more difficult than literal language, which is why the brain wants to recruit the help of the right hemisphere to help process、uh, this different form of language. But essentially, both metaphoric and literal language engage the left hemisphere core language area more. That certainly stands to reason, but it also makes me think of the fact that there must be. Something about metaphor that is appealing to us on some level; otherwise, we wouldn't use it as much as we do in art.、Um, 
Certainly there are professors who are teaching calculus who can find creative ways to express themselves and to teach the, the subject. There might be other calculus professors who do not do that, right? Yes. So, so there has to be a, a, a socially beneficial element or, or a communicatively beneficial element to using metaphor. Do you agree with that? or? I completely agree okay. with that. In fact, we're actually currently collaborating with a structural geology professor. His name is George Davis, and he has a textbook that uses visual metaphor to talk about structural geology. We're going to look at whether learners learn better with these visual metaphor figures than uh, those that use traditional abstract uh, figures. As someone who loves language and likes to use colorful language and enjoys hearing new metaphors, um, I can think of the fact that I have a very emotional response to some metaphor. And an example that always comes to mind for me is a phrase that is more common in the UK than it is in the United States. They sometimes use the phrase, it's like chalk and cheese, meaning two things are completely different from one another and should not be compared. I almost have a physical gag response to chalk and cheese. What might you be able to tell me about why I have such a visceral response to a metaphor like that? That metaphors are emotionally more engaging than literal language. This has been shown in a number of studies. Uh, in one fMRI study, they showed that metaphors activate uh, the amygdala more than literal language in the brain. Another lab that is working on measuring the skin conductance response to metaphoric language as opposed to literal language. That study will explain your reactions to that phrase, physiological responses on the skin. Uh -huh. And they also measure uh, this pupil dilation in, when they listen to metaphoric sentences as compared to literal sentences. And the predictions there are that your pupils will get bigger when you listen to metaphoric sentences, indicating that you have more of an emotional response for metaphoric sentences. And you mentioned the amygdala. Remind us, what is the amygdala usually responsible for in brain activity? Something that is emotional, arousing, unpleasant, unpleasant. Tell me, Vicki, has your research changed the way that you use language or receive language? I definitely think twice or three times when I speak, <laughs> <laughs> metaphorically or literally. I talked with Vicki Lai, an assistant professor in the UA Department of Psychology Cognitive Science Program, about her decade of research into metaphors. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.